0: Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. On today's podcast, we will be talking about gender-based violence. This is not a simple discussion, and it's not an easy one. As a result, today's episode will be longer than usual. And if you're a survivor of gender-based or police violence, there are moments that may be triggering for you. Unfortunately, there is not a national crisis line in Canada for survivors of gender-based violence but you can find Provincial Crisis Lines and other resources on the podcast website. Everyone I talked to for the She, They, Us podcast had a housing story, but most of them also had stories about violence interwoven. This includes me, violent partners, violent roommates, roommates with violent partners, and violent landlords. But it also included many of the women I talked to who I hadn't contacted because of their lived experience with precarious housing. For example, Carolyn Weitzman is a world-renowned expert on the intersection between gender, housing, and violence, who we heard from in our first episode. But this is what she said when I asked her about why she got into housing research in the first place.
1: I've always, I've always been a feminist from a very young age. Uh, when I did my master's degree, I looked at um, a sort of feminist critique of crime prevention policy as it was then, and how it completely misunderstood gender-based violence and sort of some of the public-private issues. But the bottom line was, it's very difficult to look at violence without looking at housing. I'm a great believer in the housing theory of everything, which is that it's very hard to escape a violent relationship if there isn't adequate housing, it's very difficult to recover from sexual assault if your housing isn't secure. A lot of women deal with sexual harassment, not just from um, intimate partners uh, or acquaintances, but also people like landlords. Um, And, you know, the sort of overlap between housing and violence always interested me. I actually had an experience, which I'm quite happy to talk about, which is when we first moved to Toronto from Montreal, we lived in an apartment. It turned out that we were paying 42% more when we uh, got the apartment, and these were the halcyon days of um, vacancy control, in other words, the landlord couldn't raise the rent 42% between tenants. Uh, We went to the local legal clinic and started talking to some other tenants. The landlord didn't like that. He um, beat up my partner one night, and I called the police, and the police said, why are you living in such an unsafe neighborhood and refuse to press charges? We did manage to get out of that housing. And we did manage to take that landlord successfully to landlord tenant board for the overcharging of rent, if not for the violence. So for me, housing and violence has always been connected in a quite visceral way, having experienced that Um, uh, violence from a landlord.
0: Carolyn puts an interesting flip on what we've heard from the other academic experts in earlier episodes who have all emphasized that you can't talk about housing without talking about violence. Here, Carolyn is saying that you can't tell the story of gender-based violence without talking about housing. After listening to many women and gender-diverse people's stories for this podcast series, and reflecting on my own experience with both housing and violence. Carolyn's framing is a critical insight. We're going to start our story today in the Yukon with Cindy Chason.
2: My name is Cindy Chason, and I work at Betty's Haven, which is the Yukon Women's Transition Home Society. And so we have two buildings side by side in Whitehorse, Yukon. Um, The Kiyushi's Place and Betty's Haven is under the umbrella of the Yukon Women's Transition Home Society, and Kayushi's place is a women's shelter. So they initially come into Kayushi's. they spend 30 to 45 days, and then they move to second stage, which is Betty's Haven.
0: Cindy's been working at Betty's Haven for 21 years. I asked her about some of the things that have changed in that time period. The domestic
2: violence is, is really bad in the Yukon right now. Um, it's an ongoing thing, and it's society, you know, Different aspects, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a combination of both, it has really increased, and then the pandemic on top of it, we actually thought and in the first month of the pandemic, we had low rates in the home, and we we couldn't figure out why and in reality and and when the women did start coming in, we were saying like you know not that we were blaming her or anything and and we told them, you know like we're really curious as to why you know, why couldn't you come in before. And uh, a lot of it is with the pandemic, partners were home more. And so it wasn't easy for the women to escape um, because often you've got to plan those things depending on the severity of the abuse. Um, and women know, they know their partners better than anybody else, better they are than the RCMP. You know, they, they know just the minute that key goes in the door or he or she opens the door, what kind of a mood it's going to be. And so she's got to adjust to that. And, you know, if he, he or she's got the, the means or, or whatever to be the financial breadwinner in the family and the victim doesn't, um, she's got to wait till she can accumulate the monies to leave. And then they're scared that, you know, at the end of it, if I can't find housing, I'm going to have to go back. And that makes it even more dangerous for them, as, as we know. So it's just that vicious circle and it's, it's it's getting harder and harder because the housing is so minimal. They don't get enough if they have to go on social assistance. The social assistance rates don't cover the rent alone, never mind anything else. So now they're taking out of, you know, out of their food money or their incidentals to have to supplement that rent. And then you've got social assistance saying, well, you do realize you're taking out of your children's mouths to make the rent. You got to find something cheaper. And they can't. There is nothing cheaper. I I haven't been outside the Yukon for a long time. I've kind of watched the the rental rates across Canada. Uh, But here in the Yukon, you can't get a bachelor suite for under two grand a month. Um, And that is just the basic rent. That's not the heat. And the heating up here, we have one company that provides our heat and the rates are outrageous. It's nothing to heat a bachelor apartment and have it cost 5 or 600 dollars a month just to heat it. You know, you put the cost of food in, in on top of that. It's it's impossible to meet the just the basic needs. If you're not someone who has had to rent recently,
0: you may not know that those rents are not that out of whack with the rest of Canada. What I'm less certain about are the heating costs. You've probably noticed if you've listened to this podcast over several episodes, that I live down in the south of Canada in Vancouver. It's really hard for me to imagine what it must be like for women fleeing gender based violence in communities outside Whitehorse, which is the largest
2: city in the Yukon. I asked Cindy about this. The communities are really far apart in the Yukon, and it takes the, the closest community to the city is 75 kilometers away. Um, which is roughly about a 45-minute drive. But if you're a woman that's fleeing violence in the middle of the night um, and you don't have a vehicle and there's no safe home in the community, um, you're more at risk than anybody else. So trying to find rides into Whitehorse to get to the shelter can be really life-threatening sometimes. Um, You're out in the elements. So if you you don't get a ride right away, women sometimes have to hitchhike as we know, that's not always safe. Um, there have been women who have left violence, gotten a riot, ended up being raped in the process of it. So when she's come to us, she's been double victimized. If it's an older woman le- fleeing violence of a family member or something like that, she cannot leave her community. It's just too much. Um, so they often have to stay and, and take the abuse. Um, So, you know, we we need to have more shelters in the rural communities. And I don't talk just about the Yukon. Northern NWT, very limited shelters there for women to go to. And and they have the same problem where the area is spread out. And, and, you know, you can't always drive to some of the communities. We have one community here that's totally a fly-in community only. So, and they have no safe, well, they have a safe house, but nobody has the key to it, so it's always left unlocked. Cindy has been doing
0: this work for a long time. And as you've heard, it's a huge problem. So I asked Cindy, why does she think it's so hard for people to talk about
2: gender-based violence? You no, know, prior to coming to um, the organization here, I actually worked in corrections. Um, so I met the offenders first. And we are a fairly small community, even though we're the capital city of the Yukon. So in meeting the offenders first and hearing their side of the story, as opposed to hearing the victim side, um, when I came down to Kiyushi's, I was actually really surprised at the amount of domestic violence there was in the Yukon. Um, and I've lived here a really good majority of my life. And, uh, you know, when when you see and see the people coming in the doors, it's like, Wow, this is really happening here, talking to Cindy, you get a very
0: keen sense of how much strength it takes to do the work she does. I ask her what keeps
2: her going i have um I have fifteen grandkids that I keep going for, and uh eight of those fifteen are females um and i I want the world to be better for them. I want them to know that you know it's It's okay to reach out for help when you need it. Um, I try to teach them and show them what healthy relationships are so that they don't get caught up in that. But it it is difficult. Um, And, you know, there are nights I do. I go home and I cry myself to sleep. Um, I had a lady come in not so long ago. She said, you know, I was in here 10 years ago. And actually, it was closer to 15. She said, and you found me housing in a month. She said, I've been here 18 months this time and you haven't found me housing. And I know they put it on me. It's not up to me to find her housing. But in the beginning, women could come in and we didn't have to get on them right away. They could relax. They could, you know, try to come down a little bit from their crisis and know that they were safe and secure before we started on them with, you know, here's a housing application and you should get on this and you should get on that. And now they come in and before they're even in the door and do their intake, we have to talk to them about housing, you know? Um, And we watch them. The hardest part now is watching them leave and either potentially going back to the abuser or knowing that they're going out into the elements or into really unsafe situations.
0: We're going to hear more from Cindy later in this episode, but I wanted to bring Sarita Moore in here.
3: Um, My name is Sarita Moore. I was born in Burnaby. Right now, I currently live in Port Coquitlam, where I've lived um, for almost, I'd say, 18 years. I live right now at an Atira building called the Alex.
0: Sarita grew up the child of a single mother, and she's a Black woman. I asked her about her housing journey, and she's moved so many times that even just the highlight version of her housing journey takes more than an hour for her to tell. I've edited it for this podcast, but I wanted you to get a strong sense of what it's like to deal with finding and keeping housing with so many of the things that we've heard in previous episodes are strikes against you in the current housing crisis.
3: When I was younger, I remember moving a lot. My mom was a single mother, so um, I remember moving a lot. Actually, I remember moving in shopping carts a lot. (laughs) (laughs) My mom would get shopping carts and we usually stayed in, uh, in in the same areas, So I remember me and my brother did a lot of the moving with shopping carts and uh, getting our friends, putting couches on on, like a couple shopping carts and moving my mom. I don't really, never really asked my mom why we move so much. I assume being a single mom is hard and we kind of just kept downsizing. Uh, Probably at 14 years old, my problems at home got uh, worse. My mom dealt with a lot of things as a young person and did her best. Um, to raise us. But um, I think she had a lot of trauma from her life and it kind of affected her parenting. Um, I'd go stay at my cousin's house. So I guess that was my first experience of homelessness was constantly going to my cousin's house for the weekend just to try to get away. Once I turned about uh, 14, I just couldn't handle living at home anymore. Um, I decided to just leave um, around that age. I would usually stay either at a friend's house if their mom said no because it was during school nights and stuff like that. Um, Sometimes I slept slept at Edmund Skytrain Station on the bench there just to have a safer place to sleep where it was lit up a bit. Uh, So it was staying in jail cells or stolen vehicles. And I realized probably at 15 or 16 that men really liked homeless girls (laughs) so um not to get into such great detail but there was always a man and I don't mean a boy I mean a man who would offer me a place to stay and when I got there it would be um they they would want me to do certain things or make me feel uncomfortable and um I didn't like having to stay at these people's houses but I didn't really have a safer place to go um, eventually, I realized I women are beautiful, for one, and that um, that I was able to manipulate people with my looks. I wouldn't say manipulate because I was a, I was a victim, right? So I was able to use my gender and my looks to get into relationships with older men and have them house me and look after me. But with that came abuse, um, a lot of physical abuse. I've lost, like, I got my teeth knocked out, I think at 16, by a grown man. Um, Eventually, I moved in with my kid's dad, who was a drug dealer at the time. And um, he was very abusive to me. And then I found out I was pregnant. So I left him. Sarita
0: moves in with a cousin in Langley, but that turns out not to be much safer. She moves out of there and gets her own apartment at 19, has her daughter, and begins her life as a
3: single mother. I had my daughter at 19. Um, Mm. I was a single mom for for her first year of her life. And uh, as I was living in that apartment, I think I was on social assistance. I didn't feel good about being on social assistance. I felt like um, it wasn't. I wanted more in my life. I didn't want to go down the same track as my mom. I didn't want to raise my daughter in poverty. So then I met another drug dealer (laughs) and fell in love with him. And we were together for about 10 to 12 years, I think. But within that time, I think the police kicked in our door probably four times. And uh, whenever he got arrested, of course they would kick in the door, they would take anything worth of value and I would have no money for rent. So I would be scrambling, Uh, Move from our nice, expensive apartment down to a a, a more affordable apartment. Um, Visit him in jail, take my daughter to go visit him. And it was just like 12 years of that. I finally uh, got tired of the police kicking my door. I got tired of the abuse from the police. Um, One time I went to go visit him and the police actually followed me to my cousin's house. And I assumed because I visited him, I was involved in some kind of crime which I never was and uh, they pulled me over and I thought they were um, gangsters because they were in undercover full undercover gear they looked kind of like bikerish and they pulled guns out to both sides of my windows told me to get out of the car and I was just I was scared I didn't know what was going on they uh, ripped my door handles off my truck and then they couldn't get in because they've ripped the door handles off when I unlocked the door. So they're holding these guns and they're trembling and shaking and they're telling me not to move, but I got to move to open the door. So I was super scared. I remember having a hoodie on and I remember looking over and seeing my cousin in her window. She lived in, uh, I call them the projects by Joyce terrain Station. She lived in um, the housing there and I didn't cry out. I knew if I cried out, she would hear me, but they had guns and they had them directed at me. So They took me for a walk down the hallway. They pulled my hood over my head and walked me down the hallway, uh, down the alleyway. And uh, they held me in under somebody's carport for like, I think it felt like an hour, but it probably 10 minutes and telling me to shut up, shut up, shut up. And I had braids in my hair. And as they were pulling my head, uh, my hood, they were ripping my braids out of my hair at the same time. So um, I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, all of a sudden, the owner of the house comes down. And he says, what's going on down here? And that's when the officer identified himself and said, I'm a police officer. This is an ongoing investigation. And at that, that point, I just like, I, I cried, I screamed. I, I, I said, what the fuck? Like, what, what's going on? What are you doing?
0: Sarita has a non-disclosure agreement with the Vancouver Police Department as a result of a settlement related to this and other incidents. So I can't include the rest of this particular story, but here's what happens immediately after the police finally let her go.
3: I get home to my daughter. She can see that I'm, you know, I remember looking at her and I just said, I'm not doing this anymore with the VPD. And I talked to a lawyer and he said he would take my case. So that was super empowering for me. Um, I pressed charges against VPD. I signed uh, something where I told them I wouldn't talk about it, a disclosure. Um... It was not a huge settlement. I think it was 10 grand. Ended up walking away with eight grand. It was more for... It, it kind of built me up to realize that I, I was... I don't deserve a lot of these this treatment that I've had over the years. So that was a really big turning point for me to say, like, I'm a good person. I'm not a criminal. Um, you know, I, uh, I had a job at Atira during the time when this happened. So... Um, yeah, that was a big eye-opener where I just said I had to secure my finances and my housing situation to be affordable for me not to have to lean on men or any other situations for me to have to survive. And um, I think that was the last time I was pretty much homeless. Um, I, I moved to the West and I've just been thriving since.
0: This is nowhere near the end of Sarita's story, though. She may not be in an abusive relationship, but she is still a single mom and she's still black and having to face all the discrimination that comes along with that. We're going to hear the rest of her story later in this episode. But first, I wanted to bring in a couple of other women. Sarah Eftekar moved to Canada with her parents from Iran many years ago. Although she's lived here most of her life, she's seen the discrimination that other people in her community have faced in housing, and it's had a very direct impact on choices she's made in both her professional and her personal life. One of those choices is working as a nurse, and through that work, she's doing some research, which she's going to tell us about here.
4: The past year, I've been working on a research uh, study about how organizations uh, can better support BIPOC plus women, and um, specifically on the North Shore. And through this research project, I've been uh, doing a lot of outreach with the Farsi-speaking community on the North Shore, and um, specifically people who are experiencing intimate partner violence, how they can uh, better be supported because they found, organizations have found that a lot of um, Farsi-speaking women are not using their resources or their programs and so I did a survey where I we um, interv- where I interviewed about forty farsi speaking women, and I asked them what their biggest barriers were. And the top one of the top things on the list was housing. Um, they said they weren't able to escape their violent situation or to leave their violent situation because there's just no housing available. So they said that they chose violence over poverty and over homelessness. And for me that made me feel really discouraged and it made me feel really upset. And I looked into the housing policies and what the issues were. And I found that, for example, BC housing will give women uh, money, uh, like a subsidy every month to be able to help pay for rent. um, And they're able to do that for people who are escaping violence. Uh, But I found that this, this budget or this money wasn't even being used because there's, like no housing available and they're not being there's a lot of discrimination with them being able to get housing um and so for me it made me think like okay so it's not about just you know putting in millions of dollars into housing and saying like we're going to give these organizations like a million dollars to get put to provide housing for all or to get people housed we really have to look at the policies and the processes of getting housing and what the what barriers are facing. So I don't know all the answers to how people can how everyone can be housed and and all the housing policies that would be beneficial. But I think that we can't just say, you know, we're building 500 units for low income folks. We have to really think about um, how these folks are going to find out about the housing, how uh what supportive services they need to maintain their housing so i think it's a lot deeper than that and so i don't want to give a simple solution like oh everyone should be well everyone should be housed but um we should just provide housing for all i think we really need to look specifically at all the barriers that people are facing and for me i'm really passionate about um women who are fleeing violence and um, racialized women who are f- fleeing violence and, and Um, Not just having housing for them, but having shelters for them, because there's only one shelter on the North Shore and one transition home on the North Shore, which is full all the time. And a lot of the times women don't want to go to Vancouver if there is even shelter or leave their community. So um, I think long term housing is one solution, but having more transition homes and shelters is also another um, solution that we need to look at.
0: We will hear more from Sarah in our next episode, but I brought her in here to illustrate a point that Carolyn Weitzman made at the beginning of this episode about how gender-based violence is really a housing issue. Sarah has explained why women stay with violent partners. Cindy explained how women end up back with violent partners because they need housing. And Sarita's story illustrates how some women end up with violent partners in the first place because they also desperately need housing. This is Michaela Meyer from the Canadian Centre for Women's Empowerment.
5: My name is Michaela Meyer. Um, I go by the pronouns she, her, L and I'm the Director of a Policy at the Canadian Centre for Women's Empowerment, so short CCFWE. And um, our organization is based in Ottawa, but I'm personally calling in from uh, the unceded territory of the Mohawk and Haudenosaunee nations, also known as Montreal, can- uh, Quebec.
0: I asked Michaela if she can explain a little bit about the work that she does.
5: Sure. Um, so, um at the maybe a little bit about the organization itself so the Canadian Centre for Women's Empowerment is um, the only Canadian um, national nonprofit organization that is solely dedicated to addressing economic abuse in the context of um, domestic violence um, so really um, focusing on um, economic injustice and um, we are working not really off or we are not um, offering direct services but we're working more on an advocacy level so for system change media meaning we're doing a lot of research, education, and also advocacy to really remove uh, the systemic barriers that survivors are facing um, in the system. And so, of course, as um, director of policy, this is really one of my main um, tasks to kind of look at the systemic level um, where systemic barriers exist currently that really hinder women of taking agency um, post-separation and to really regain control of their lives and to really have this empowering aspect. So this is um, very broadly what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) I asked Michaela how prevalent economic abuse is as a form of gender-based violence.
5: So um, just very broadly, um, according to Statistics Canada, almost half, so 44% of all women in Canada have experienced or are experiencing some form of abuse, which is quite a lot. (laughs) Um, And so from those... um, In general, like we conducted our own small study in the greater Ottawa region, um, where we have confirmed as well um, other studies that have been conducted in the United States, in Australia, in the UK, that all kind of come to the same conclusion that almost roughly 95% of all domestic abuse survivors have also experienced economic abuse. So it's a very common form of um, abuse of coercive controlling behavior by a partner to really um, make a victim financially, economically uh, independent, right, on the person. So, um, just maybe to clarify economic abuse, we are generally differentiating between three forms. So, one is um, employment sabotage, which basically means either harassing um, the victim to leave the job or not even applying for a job, so really that she doesn't have any income by herself. Then economic control, meaning the limitation of um, income or any economic resources, but also access to information, so meaning um, so limiting the information she, uh, the, the victim has about family income, about any potential debts, not including her in any major financial decisions. Um, so yeah, in that sense, really controlling the access to any resources that um, the victim has. And then thirdly, um, economic uh, economic exploitation. So that would be like the misuse of money. So it is either um, really, for example, well, we've heard a lot, um, that now in the day and age of like where you can do everything online, that abusers sometimes open credit cards in the victim's name without um, her knowledge because they have all the information so they can do it online and they can, you know, um, have the debt accumulated on the account, um, well, but that the victim doesn't even know about. So these are like the three forms of economic abuse that, um, we're usually like referring to. And it is very common in Canada, but also as we saw um, in other studies all across um, the world, basically.
0: We've spent a lot of time talking about income in this podcast series, and specifically how having a lower income makes it much harder to access housing. But we haven't spent much time talking about wealth. Wealth is not about having a high income. It's the amount of assets that you own, such as a house. As Michaela points to, Western societies still heavily assume that wealth is controlled by men in a household, not by women. And as a result, home ownership is considered the domain of men. Imagine how much different life would be for the woman that Cindy has coming to Betty's Haven, or the Farsi-speaking woman that Sarah was talking to, if they were presumed to own the house and they could kick the men out when they were being violent instead of having to flee themselves only to come back when they can't find housing that they can afford. So back to Sarita. When we last left her story, she had just experienced a violent incident with the Vancouver Police Department, successfully won a settlement from them, and was ready to get her life on a steadier path in a rental she had found in New West. For those outside of the Lower Mainland, New West is short for New Westminster, a suburb about 10 kilometers east of Vancouver violence, including police violence, have found Sarita in New West.
3: That housing in New West, the police kicked in the door. That was the final door kick in I had, I think. Yes, the police kicked in the door. Um, it got to the point where it was just getting bad. It was getting really bad. I remember I get, was so frustrated with him bringing drugs into my house. I just, he was very abusive too at times, but This one time I said, I told him not to bring guns and drugs in my house. And I found a gun and drugs in my house. My daughter's there, right? Like, we're constantly getting the door kicked in. Like, keep it somewhere else. Oh, I forgot. I went to the club last night, this, that. And I just remember getting mad at him. And I remember them being a wine bottle on the counter. And I hit him so hard over the head that he started squirting blood out of his ear. And I grabbed my stuff. My kid wasn't there. She was at school. And I grabbed whatever I could. And I just ran. And I was like. I think I killed him, like, and that's when I knew, like, I was putting myself in such bad situations that I didn't want to be in. I did, I had no, I was like, it was driving me crazy, literally, right? Like, maybe I thought in my head, if I killed him, it would all be over. And thinking that way, I realized it's time to go, right? I have this daughter to raise. So from New West, that's when we started our journey in Poco. Um, We moved to we really low roof after new west we moved to like just up the hill in poco to a basement suite um that one was okay I, I didn't really have a bedroom in that place i kind of had a tiny it was like a tiny room i don't think i even had a bed i think i slept on the couch um i gave my daughter the bigger room um we kind of started normalizing i guess and um being more secure with with our housing, my daughter was consistently at a school for a while, which was cool. And you know, it wasn't like I pulled her from another school again. She had to change. She started making friends. She started at a new. Um, my daughter's been in gymnastics since she was um, since she was two years old. Um, so we got her in. Uh, I got her into a gym out there, and I remained pretty much a single mom until now um raising my kid but we went from Como Lake a place like on Como Lake and then we went for um that place actually we went away for my kids competition and uh the landlord was redoing the roof and when he redid the roof i guess there was rats in the roof so when i grew up i grew up with like it was bad. Like I would get to the bottom of my cereal box and it would be feces from animals or from mice or rats or whatever. You know, I remember laying tape on my bedroom floor and catching, catching rodents that were running around my room and playing with them. Like now as, a, as an adult, I'm like, it's like, I have a phobia. I'm completely, utterly scared of these things. Right. And I came home, walked into my house and I seen I was sitting on the couch and I started screaming. And then I hear my daughter screaming from the room and there's mice in the house, like, or rats. They were rats, but there were babies. So I called my landlord. He said, Oh, it's from the roof. Da, 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 da. Like he, any, and then I started looking, he put traps in my house without me knowing. So he knew they were there. He just didn't tell me. So I had to call my brother. Of course my mental health kicks in. I can't even, I'm frozen. I can't move. I can't, pack my own house luckily my brother came and uh helped me pack and actually packed for me I called the movers and I and I moved out of there which was sad because that was another that that was my first secure housing after the the door click in but you know with the money I had I couldn't buy adequate housing or anything nicer at the time I mean I couldn't rent sorry buy I'll never buy but (laughs) rent um so we moved to uh, another place, downtown Poco on Atkins, and we stayed there it, We stayed there for um, a while. Uh, I think it was probably about four years. and a beautiful place. I loved my floors. I had my family over. It was just like it was pretty much like this place I have now. It was it had that vibe, a brand new condo. It was nice. It was beautiful. I started getting furniture. I started like putting, get up paintings and stuff like that and making it my home. And uh, the landlord came one day and told us he was selling a house or selling the condo and we had to move. So that was devastating. And I think that's when the market just started to climb. And uh, I was actually homeless again. Sarita
0: decides that she needs a job that brings in better income, so she has a better shot at getting stable housing. So she decides to become a conductor, not like the kind that work with orchestras, but like the kind you find on a train. This is a pretty bold move, as very few women are conductors, and even less of them are Black women. But like most of her life, Sarita finds a way to succeed despite the racism and the sexism, until this incident
3: it was on the back of the train and I looked and I I heard screaming and I was like, Oh my God, what is that? I heard a woman screaming. So I pushed the, I, I told the name, their train that it was emergency and that we needed to stop. Oh God. <laughs> so they stopped the train. I got written up for this. Actually, they stopped the train and I told them I can hear a woman screaming. And I ran to like, I checked to make sure I was safe, ran across like seven different tracks to the other closer to the fence and she, I hear her saying help. I said, I got help coming on the way, hang in there. And I th- I said, We see you. And I kind of made myself known to her uh dude. And I said, I need a, we don't we we're not allowed to carry our phones on the shift. We only have the radio. So I radio in and say we need to call 911. The guy responded to me and said that whore's always back there. Do your fucking job. And I was like, I had no cell phone, no nothing. And what did my stupid ass do is go back to work and i think the it stopped because i think he heard somebody but it's still no one sent her help nobody you know i don't know if she was lying there still i just knew the sounds were gone right i went back to work i couldn't have access to my phone and um i just slowly and slowly fell into a really deep depression and i started using drugs
0: I asked Sarita if she thinks that racism has played a role in the violence that she's experienced in her life.
3: My mom did tell, teach me is like, this is like, I, I'm, I'm I'm, proud of myself. I'm proud of being black. And I'm proud of being a woman and, and women can do anything men can do. Like I live with a single mom. So when I went into the real world and, and seen how um, women were treated so powerless, I didn't grow up in that kind of environment. My mom was very strong in the household. So I didn't start seeing that until I left home. So it definitely had a lot to do with with racism. I think I had it a little bit better than the indigenous girls to tell you the truth. I, I think I had more of a voice. That's why, like I, not more of a voice but I used my voice a lot more. Um, maybe I was a little bit uh, less oppressed that way or I just, maybe it's just my spirit the way I am. My mom always told me she's surprised I I made it this far because of my mouth. So, yeah, (laughs) Uh, I I did notice that my Indigenous friends, I remember them getting arrested and I get to go away because I can only imagine what the cops were taking them to do. And me, I would be like, I'll tell my mom, I'll do this, I'll do that. And I don't think they really had that type of mom to go home and tell, right?
0: There's a few more moves and eventually Sarita moves in with a friend who's a man, but that doesn't go well either.
3: I fell in, fell on my face and had to get myself to get self together. I was getting in physical fights with the guy that I was staying with. Um, of course, when you, when you live with somebody, it's a different story. Um, you know, just financial abusive shit starts coming up. And that's what I dealt with. My whole, my whole homelessness was financial abuse from men and, it's the most degrading thing. It's the most abusive thing to do to somebody is to tell them that you'll care for them. And then anytime something goes wrong to uh, rip the carpet from underneath them. Right. And to tell them that you have nothing without me and um, that type of stuff. Right.
0: Sarita and her daughter move in and out of a few more places. And it always involves roommates or staying with friends and all of the challenges that we've heard in all of our episodes that come with that. And then one day,
3: Oh, I ended up moving out, uh I ended up uh, there and I was just like, I can't take this. And I finally got a call from um, Tamara telling me the Alex, um, you know, I was accepted into the Alex. And and yeah, it was just it was amazing.
0: Sarita's housing journey is harrowing, but unfortunately not as unusual as you may think. So many of the women and gender diverse people I've talked to have moved dozens of times in their lives, and these are women in their 30s and 40s. And there is a lot of poverty and a lot of violence fueling those moves. I think back to my own housing journey, which involved a few dozen moves as well, mostly involuntary, but also how much violence was involved. Like most women, I haven't talked much about it. Once you're safe, it's easier to move on. And I'm grateful to everyone I've talked to over these last episodes. It's a lot to ask people to share some of the worst moments of their life. While Sarita is in a wonderful social housing project that she is very happy in now, many women and gender diverse people are still waiting. The building Sarita is now living in, the Alex, is the same one we heard about from Janice Abbott in the first episode, where over 800 women lined up for only 83 available spots. This is not a failure of the organization that built the housing, but rather a failure of government at all levels, who are leaving so many women and gender-diverse people in precarious and dangerous situations. As I say these words, I feel like it could sound like an opinion— but it's something every researcher I spoke to talked about. Here's Alina McKay from the Finding Rooms for Family study.
6: The other piece of this is that there's a lack of affordable housing um, that can also contribute to women staying in the relationships where they're facing uh, intimate partner violence or gender-based violence um, much longer uh, than you know, th- than really anyone. Uh, I, I don't wanna use the word should, but that there's just no options available to people who are looking to actually leave a relationship that really is in, in many ways harmful. Um, and we saw this in the Finding Rooms for Family study where some women would absolutely, were terrified of, of accessing transition housing um, just because of the stigma around it. And so they often stayed in those relationships um, where there was uh, gender-based violence, um, for years waiting for social affordable housing. And it was only when they could secure social affordable housing that they would move out of that house um, where they were re- really facing quite a bit of violence. Um, so I think that is like a real um, gender specific impact of the housing crisis is where you have um, people staying in often you know, dangerous situations um, and we know also that, um, especially with intimate partner violence, the longer that, um, you know, that the person sort of stays in the, the relationship, the harder it is to leave. Um, so the lack of social affordable housing it really impacts women in those situations when they just see no way out. Um, when they're given a ten-year waiting list, uh, when they're asking about social affordable housing, and let's remember that asking for social affordable housing when you're living under the roof of someone um, that is violent towards you is an incredibly dangerous situation to be in, right? If you're um, you're asking for help and and uh, and to say like, oh, well, wait another five years, and we'll we'll see if we can fit you in. Um, That's a dangerous situation that we're placing families and women and children in.
0: I'm going to give the last word to Cindy Chason today. She's the manager at Betty's Haven in Whitehorse that we met earlier in this episode. This is the rest of her answer about what keeps her going.
2: You know, women are really resilient. And sometimes we often get women that come in and say, I don't know why I let them hit me, you know. Um, And it's like you didn't let them hit you, first of all they chose to do that. Uh, you just happen to be at the end of it. Um, and that's where I say like women know their perpetrators. They know when they're in a bad mood, they know, and, and a lot of them say, well, I didn't resist or I didn't stop. But when we show them that the, where they resisted and, and where they were strategic in, in planning things and, and knowing um, you see a whole different woman. And, you know, often they come in here, and we see them, they're closed off, their, their eyes are down, they don't want to have eye contact, and they're ashamed, never thought that they'd see themselves in this position. And it's like, by the time they leave after talking to us, and, and us showing them where they resisted and and where they were strategic and, and where they were really resilient with, with their knowledge and, and what they had to work with. I often it. Try to to correlate it with with a flower that's blossoming and opening up. And I know you can see this. Um, but it's it is it's like a flower that's all closed up when they first come in and then they just blossom after a while. And so when they leave here, a lot of them have through programming and stuff that we provide for them, um, they have the strength and and they know that, hey, I wasn't a victim, I'm actually a survivor. And, and I can go out there and I can do this and, and they do, they go out there, they get, you know, and there's a lot to be said for having a house because they go there, they set it up, they know they're safe. We might have to go in and, and, you know, put extra locks in or, or make their place secure for them, but they really grow from there, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's just really nice to watch. And that's what, that's what keeps me going. Thanks for joining us this
0: week. A reminder that if you're feeling triggered by anything in this podcast, please reach out to friends or contact a crisis line. The phone numbers for provincial crisis lines are with the information for this podcast. I really hope you'll join us for next week's episode, where we will start looking at what the solutions are for women and gender diverse people at the front line of Canada's housing crisis. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage, where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.